0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Series 10 of the Great Women Artists Podcast. I am so excited to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to fantastic works by women artists. The Levitt Collection's support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum, FAMM, F-A-M-M, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mougins, in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe, dedicated to solely female artists, and will exhibit a myriad of artworks all from the collection. Impressionist, surrealist, modern and contemporary art created by women from around the world will take pride of place in the Levitt's New Museum, Female Artists of the Mujan Museum. But in the meantime, stay tuned by following at and don't miss the beautiful book, Abstract Expressionists, The Women, published by Morel, which presents a selection of works from the collection alongside richly illustrated essays by scholars Ellen G. Landau and Joan M. Martyr, all available now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I couldn't be more excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most renowned writers, curators, critics, and cultural commentators in the world right now, Hilton Als. A Pulitzer Prize winner, a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the theatre critic at The New Yorker, where he has been writing since 1994, Als is also the author of numerous books, from White Girls, a collection of thirteen literary essays, exploring race, gender, interpersonal relationships and more, to more recently, My Pinup, an intimate study on his friendship with Prince. He is a teaching professor at Berkeley and has held previous posts at Columbia, Yale, and more. Als has been one of my favourite writers and curators on art since I can remember. He writes in a manner that is intimate with emotion and rigour, infusing it with stories from his upbringing in Crown Heights in Brooklyn to ones with more complex family dynamics. And there is a humanity at the centre of it, whether it's his ability to make us see artists as people with their struggles, desires, needs and complexities, or his belief that we can all be artists too. Often tracing the city of New York or Los Angeles through images and words, he unearthed stories that were often cast out from mainstream institutions but feel so pertinent for the world today. From Alice Neal to Diane Arbus, whose work and subject he treats with such empathy, not only can he transport us to the exact street where Arbus took that picture or to Neal's 108th Street apartment, but writes so acutely on the mediums they used. On photography versus painting, he has said, The former takes life as it comes, in an instant but can be described as a series of selective moments. Painting, on the other hand, has time on its side. The better to know, delve and express what it's like for two people to sit in a room observing one another while talking or not talking about the world. And it is the latter that I still remember experiencing. Being a gallery assistant in my early twenties at Victoria Miro, at the time of one of his many brilliant curated exhibitions, Alice Neal Uptown, when I saw the whole world walk in, recognise themselves, and feel seen and celebrated, which I think is the best outcome an exhibition can have. Hilton Als, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm very well, Katie. I'm very happy to be here. I remember you as a very energetic assistant <laughs> <laughs> at the Victoria Miro Gallery. And I had no idea that you had this very deep interest in the subject matter. But as it's always a different situation if you're working for someone and now you're working for yourself, which is wonderful. And Victoria always has the best women around who are rigorous and caring about the subject matter. So I'm so happy to be here with you.
0: Well, it was an amazing training and also to just witness that exhibition on a daily basis was extraordinary.
1: Yes, I really love Victoria and um, she makes it so possible, you know?
0: Yeah, she does. So Hilton, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. When I started it four years ago, you were one of my top people to interview because I'm so moved by your writing on art. The way you straddle memoir with moments of the artist's life or subjects, grappling with the world through their lens, brings it alive in a way that feels both personal and universal from your acute observations on what it means to paint stillness and transformation in a pregnant woman or photograph the excitement of kids playing in the streets. And really, when you write about an artwork, it feels like me and the artwork are the the only things that exist in the world. But I'd, I'd love to start by asking you, what attracts you to writing about the lives of artists?
1: That's a great question, Katie. I think it has something to do with the fact that I like getting information out to other people or as much information out to other people as possible. I feel that it's our duty that if we have language, we can share that language. And by sharing language, we're giving people access to ideas and I think intellectual atmospheres that they wouldn't have ordinarily. Let's say if they were bookkeepers or architects, they wouldn't necessarily have the information about a painter or they wouldn't necessarily have the information about Deanne Arbus's wonderful writing if it weren't us for us to disseminate information. And I think that to do that requires language that doesn't As Toni Morrison used to say, language that doesn't sweat. That one of the great efforts and beauties of being able to write and care about writing is how do we make this information available to all kinds of people, not just people who are involved in the art world. So I feel that my job really is in that context, the translator. And one of the things that can happen if you're a translator is to give people the sense that they're not alone in the Discovery.
0: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, you know, it's particularly people like you writing and Olivia Lang, who also really introduced me to a, a way of writing and a, a way of being part of this world as well and feeling accepted.
1: Yes, I'm so glad that you feel that. Um, because I think that that's really the job of the writer slash critic is to make it, um, to introduce you to a world. So when we go back and we read Baudelaire on Dormier or anything like that. He's really also talking about the epoch that produced that artist and what was the city like and what was the what was the world like at the time that Dormier started making those caricatures and what was modern life? How do you define that? I think that I learned a lot from reading very early on critics like Gautier who was writing about dance or Baudelaire because they not only gave you the art but they gave you the context in which it was produced.
0: Yeah. And also I love hearing from people who aren't necessarily writers on dance, about dance as well. I think also it gives people the license to feel like they can write about anything. Writing is a kind of, it's a tool.
1: That's right. You're using this language, which is highly specific to the writer, to make a general statement in that specificity. So a good example of that would be Well, it's what Arbus says, right, that the more specific a photograph is, the more general it is. And I think that one of the things that is really sort of terrifically important is that in our specificity, whether it's describing the object or the ways in which the artist produced it, if we can be as specific as possible, it gives people enough of a seed for their imagination to flower.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm also fascinated by your route into art. Was art always something you were interested in and was it present when you were growing up?
1: You know, it's interesting, Katie. I had this very weird, interesting thing as a kid, which is that I I never wanted people to be, there were photographs and I didn't want people to be forgotten. So I would write down dates and names of people on the back of pictures. And I guess that was one of my first curatorial efforts, sorry. And I think that it was about memory for me in some way that I didn't want, people to be forgotten, and that there was this visual information or clues to who these people had been in a photograph or sometimes a drawing or whatever. But now that I'm telling you this, I realized that I must have, as a queer kid, I didn't want to be forgotten, and that I was making myself useful in order to have this information, in order to write down that these people shouldn't be forgotten. It was an act of saying, I didn't want to be forgotten, too. So I think that somewhere in that productive confusion, there was a way in which I started looking at pictures. And I also had a sister who was very, um, she had amazing style and she was a a writer and a poet. Watching her self-invent also led to my interest in pictures by and for women who were in the act of self-invention. So there's, Angra's great portrait of Comtesse de Housenville. It was an incredibly important, poignant picture to me because it was not only the artist working in collaboration with the subject, but it was also showing you that the subject was not a passive vessel, that the woman had as much energy and force as the artist in this picture. I never thought of her as a kind of a projection of the artist's imagination. She's too strong a person to um, settle for that. So I was very drawn to that painting, which seemed reflective of what I was seeing at home, right? Which is sisters who were very strong in their self-presentation. But I was also at the same time that I discovered the painting, which I was about 19 or 18, I had started reading Flaubert, and I had started reading 19th century French novelists. And what was fascinating to me about Balzac and Flaubert in particular was that, Flaubert's case in particular, that he was not separate from the writing, that his writing about Madame Bovary was her body. And I knew that I couldn't write in a way that was distanced. I could write specifically about the event, but I couldn't write it... Um, theoretically, and so it was a, an amazing period for me or a year really, where I was studying these artists at the new school. I also took a class in Chinese art, which has always interested in me as well and I had a great professor in that class who told me that I should go on to study it that i had that I had talent for it. but then I went to Columbia and I was majoring in art history, and I was studying with a great Great professor named Kenneth E. Silver, who's at um, NYU now, and he discouraged me from being an academic. He said, "You know, you can be a writer, and still do this work without the academy driving you crazy. The academy is going to tell you how to do something, and you'll have to do it that way, and it it won't fit your personality or the or what you like about this subject." I feel that I had great angels on and great luck um, to meet Professor Chang and to meet. Kenneth Silver, and to understand that I could see in my own way.
0: Yeah, and invent the form for yourself as well. I remember Virginia Woolf, you know, speaking about the success of especially women writing novels, as it was a relatively new art form where the rules had not been laid down. And, you know, George Eliot saying, no educational restrictions can shut women out from the materials of fiction, because there are no species of art which is so free from rigid requirements. And I think we should all invent the form for
1: ourselves. I'm very flattered that I've invented anything at all, but I think I just didn't understand that I was breaking any rules. I could only do it as myself. And this, of course, hasn't led to the greatest financial security. I'm, I'm, I always laugh that I'm the heir to the great essay fortune, but at least I have myself in the, in the process, you know?
0: Your brain is worth much more than anything in cultural currency.
1: Thank you. So then I was at Columbia and I dropped out and I started working. The job that I had at one point was as a secretary at the Village Voice in the art department. They were very generous and I started to learn how to do layouts. But what I was really interested in was photo editing. And I think what happened was that Fred McDara retired eventually and I was promoted to picture editor. And it was a, it was a job that I really loved doing because it doesn't affect your writing. It's a visual job. And also you're still storytelling, you're still helping people tell their stories. And it was also a way of being a kind of shrink to photographers. And if you listen, a lot of photographers read for relaxation because it's not visual. And I was learning how to listen to the artists in terms of what they were able to visualize or want to visualize and to fit the image to the story. So it was almost sort of like every week I loved making these little movies, really, that had text and image. And The Voice was a very free place in that way that everybody had a hand in in making the paper every week. I loved working there. I was working there, and then I got another job at the New York Times magazine picture editor. And then I got a job at Vibe, magazine where I was working much more fully with images and text as an editor at large. And so images were always kind of utilitarian to me. And at the same time, they didn't have the aura of preciousness. You know, that images were something one used to tell a story or to but to speak of what the photographer saw in that situation or that image. I was very interested in how how real the world was through alchemy, that the ground glass, the photographer brought back a fragment of the universe that maybe we would never have seen before, you know?
0: Yeah, completely. I mean, art history is basically the history of the world traced through images that are traced through an individual's lens, through an individual's perspective. And in a way, we're just seeing the people who came before us but as, you know, Emily Dickinson said, sort of putting it on that slant as well, making us see something anew that, as you say, we might not have seen otherwise. And I love with your curating, we see these figures like James Baldwin or Joan Didion through art. And, you know, you put like a Pat Steer painting in your show or a work by Betty Sarr. And I mean, I'm so fascinated, like through the lens of Joan Didion. I mean, how do you tell a story of a person through Art objects.
1: And how do you tell a story of a verbal person, right? She's not a visual artist. I think, really, Katie, it's not such a big secret. It's sort of like just reading <laughs> and allowing yourself to imagine as you read. One of the things that was so powerful and important to me about working on Joan was how visual she was, because, you know, they earned their living writing screenplays. And one of the things that I loved about her writing was that it was visual. It really was not a work of genius on my part to just kind of see how she expressed herself. What you're really looking at is how does this verbal person express him or her or themselves? And they really are supplying the clues all the time. If we have a close reading with someone, it's essential that we really read them and that we take care with the information that they're giving us on the page. So it was not only reading what was actually written, but it was having a mind that was open to the experience of reading. So that let's say if I did a show on Sylvia Plath, I'd be very interested in England as an expatriate. What did that feel like? What was the city like? Was it like a Frank Auerbach or was it like a Celia Paul? What was the town like at that point? So you're you're working not only through association, but you're working based on the aura of what the writer is creating on on the page.
0: I I think it's the most exciting way of seeing someone as well.
1: Yes, and also it brings them back in a very emotional kind of immediate way. It gives us a lot of information about resonance. How does this visual object resonate with the words and how do the words resonate with the visual object, each is playing off the other. And it's incredibly crucial that we take care to not literalize the words or make the paintings or the photographs behave in a way that adheres to the language. You wanna sort of fill up the space in between those two things. And the job that I, feel always is that I want to make an environment in which the objects are falling between the cracks and the words are evaporating, but we've caught them just before they leave us, you know? So I think that we want to do something in real time that's evocative of the past, the past being what the writer has created and the present time of of looking.
0: I think that's also what's so moving about your writing on Alice Neal as well. You know, I remember reading your Uptown catalog when it first came out and it's something that's really stayed with me and taught me so much about art writing as well and almost the in-between space between Alice and her subject, but also us and the painting in a way, even if we might not be standing in front of it and the stories that might Evolve from that. I mean, I know that you saw her work in the late 1970s when you were not yet 20. And also when she was still alive, she died in 1984. I mean, how did you discover her work and how did you feel?
1: It was weird, Katie. I think I was at Columbia and I think I must have seen an image in Ken Silver's class, Art of the 60s. And I was very taken by the image. I can't remember what it was. Maybe of the which of Warhol, perhaps. And um, I feel that my education is so, so much about discovering something, a glimpse of something, and following through to see if it's viable. So then when I went to the library, there was a catalog with this woman, Alice Neal. And what I was taken by was that it looked like the world of New York that I knew. And it wasn't a world of rich people. It wasn't a world of concept. It was a world that I understood, but it had been alchemized through this paint and the way that this woman painted souls. I could feel the souls of the subjects. I was amazed by how much she had given to... It's sort of going back to the Angra portrait, right, where it's a collaboration um, between the Comtesse and Angra, Of course, he drove her crazy nine days on one hand, that kind of thing. (laughs) But, um, But Alice cared about people in a way that was so touching to me, but also deeply familiar. And at the same time, about the ways in which this kind of other capital O society made itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember before the exhibition was installed in, what was it, 2017 or something, and all the paintings were just lying, you know, face up, on the floor, and because obviously it was a two-floor exhibition, there were loads, but they were all in just like a row. And it felt like walking down the street and seeing your neighbours and sort yes. of peering into their windows. It was so friendly in a way.
1: Yes, and so um, welcoming, but it has this kind of amazing spiritual quality too, right? That there's this kind of penetrating idea of what does it mean to have a kind of relationship to the subject? And I love what you've written about her in your book because I think that it's true that she was revolutionising something that had was out of fashion, right? This idea of painting people from life, let alone doing portraits at a time when abstract expressionism and then pop art and all of that um, was happening. To stay the course of something like portraiture was really amazing.
0: Are there any particular works or a work that, Really moves you.
1: There was this wonderful show that was curated by Jenny Neal and Bellatrix Hubert at Zwerner. And I can't remember if it was a year or two ago, two years maybe. Freedom. Yes. And there was a picture of her children in a Christmas tree. And Hartley, her youngest son, has one sock on. And it is such an incredible portrait of poverty and hope. I think that's probably my favorite painting of hers, other than the portrait of her cleaning lady nursing her child.
0: Carmen and Judy.
1: Yeah, because they do speak to poverty and class and capital, but they also speak to what transcends the limitations is this kind of soul.
0: I think something also that you've written about, I mean, you said earlier, you know, this idea of living with voids and and actually trying to... Catch something, you know, just before it goes, or something. And I think with Alice Neal, this this idea that even though there might not be a portrait that day, there was also paint. And so when we think about her landscapes as well, I think they're portraits of the landscape, but they were also portraits of absence as well.
1: That's right. It's particularly in those early works when she was, I think, relatively new to living in Harlem, she did landscapes that were about poverty, and she was also doing landscapes that were about the ways in which the soul can sometimes get mangled when it's ghettoized. But on the other hand, there's always the possibility of, of real freedom and escape through the imagination and through care.
0: I mean, also, I visited her apartment earlier this year on 108th Street. Oh, yeah. And also sort of seeing her personality also come alive through those paintings paintings of the built environment i felt like i was going to like the equivalent of the friends building or something yes. in the sense that it was like this pilgrimage to alice Neal's apartment but even just the way that she creates character within these buildings no matter where they are
1: was that with the neils
0: yeah yeah, yeah. I, I went to see hartley and ginny i sat on the sofas and i was like oh my god it's the andy warhol sofa oh my god <laughs> <it's> the linda <laughs> <Lyndon Auckland sofa." laughs>
1: That's. sofa great. that's great
0: I think what's so interesting in the artists who you look at, such as Deanne Arbus or Alice Neal, you know, it's also so much to do with city and place and New York City. I mean, why are you attracted to this place, New York City, that is the sort of stage of all these paintings?
1: That's a great question. I think it, um, well, I grew up there, but I think that what I'm interested in is how they have each exposed me to a place that I don't recognise. I recognise elements in their work, whether it's Arbus with a park bench or Neil with a particular light or railroad tracks in the early works, but they make New York a place of myths and that it's the myths that live there are self-invented and the sitters are self-invented, the artist is self-invented. And so what are we left with in terms of this kind of shredded reality is visual storytelling that is really concentrated on myth-making. Whether it's the myth of the artist or myth of the subject, there's this really kind of incredible feeling that Arbus and Neil bring to a city that they both really loved enormously, but they also remake in their own psychological image. I can really identify and see certain things, but at the same time, I think that what I love about them unconditionally is is not only their love of the city, but the ways in which to remake it in their own image.
0: But I think it's also extraordinary walking around the city and, and seeing, like yesterday I was in Tribeca and I saw the building that Cindy Sherman took a picture at one of her untitled film stills as well. I mean, you feel like you're sort of in an artwork sometimes here.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: I mean, through Arbus's you know, spontaneous images, I mean, what do you think she revealed about the culture of New York?
1: I think she revealed what was interesting to her. <laughs> You know, I think that to have such a definite point of view is a way of saying these things are a mystery to me. And maybe they'll be a mystery to you too. So let's go on this trip together. Let's not define the world through the lens of normalcy. Let's define, let's not define the world at all and talk about the ways in which self creation or the mythology of of creation is really so wildly important and that there's so much energy that's applied to becoming a self her work is so tender to me because of the investment that the subjects have put in their own self-creation they look beautiful to themselves and i think that that's one of the things that she's capturing in her writing for sure is that beautiful again this is alchemy but instead of writing or taking a picture, the subjects have used themselves as the canvas, have used themselves as the people that they wish that they believe that they are. It's not even wish. They believe that they are that person. And she doesn't tamper with that. I'm always alarmed when people think that you know they're harsh or there's no harshness in her picture. She's interested and showing us the ways in which people want to represent themselves. It's almost like a portal into their own reality.
0: Totally. I mean, like Neil, it's a conversation that's playing out as well. They're seeing something in a person and they're also saying, like you said at the beginning, this person deserves to be remembered. That's right. And let's write their name down on the back of that photograph or that portrait as well.
1: That's exactly right. You've come full circle, Katie. (laughs)
0: But also, I think that what's incredible is Deanne Arbus's writing. I know people always quote this back to you, and I think you used it in the New York Review of Books article. But, you know, she says that I work from awkwardness. By that, I don't like to arrange things. I stand in front of something instead of arranging it. I arrange myself. I mean, how has Arbus's writing influenced you as a human being?
1: Oh my gosh. That quote is from her book of Deanne Arbus, which her daughter, Dune Arbus, and Marvin Israel did such a brilliant job of editing and that was taken from a transcript. I think that I've learned a great deal about reporting from her, that I don't walk into the situation with any preconceived notion of who the person is, other than you know if they've written books that I've read or painted pictures. I walk in as a tabula rasa, and it's my job to not declare who I am, but it's my job to listen to who they say that they are. And if I have any critique about that after the experience, I can say it in aside, But the experience is really about me working from the awkwardness of not being intimate with this person and also not having a way in which my beginnings always have to do with, they're about submitting. I think she's saying that the artist submits to the subject. And I submit to the subject as well, yes.
0: But I think that's so interesting as well when you're thinking about, you know, in a way conversing with Arbus who is not here, but Mm -hmm. her pictures exist. So it's almost like this ongoing conversation with these artists and writers. How do you kind of get up close to these subjects and artists through the image when they're not there anymore?
1: I think it's being porous and I think it's being open to the experience of what they've done. One of the more important things that we can do as thinkers is to remain porous to the ideas that the artist has conveyed, as opposed to what I would want them to do. So again, it's sort of submitting. It doesn't mean being a supplicant, but it means submitting to this experience that they have been so generous enough to share with us. Because it's a great act of generosity to make work, to make portraits, I think.
0: Yeah, and also to keep that person not just alive in tangible form, but also alive in your imagination. That's right. And for that also to lead to art that you then create. I remember seeing Lubaina Hamid, a fantastic British artist, speak. And she said that every artwork, it gives her a question that she has to answer with something else. And I love the idea of sort of taking in these words and, you know, throwing off something else that becomes another artwork that will pass on to someone else. It's like this kind of strange chord or something.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: How do artists help you make sense of the world?
1: I think because they leave you clues about the world about their existence. And if you can, again, remain porous to the experience, you're really looking at how they perceive life and experience. And so it's sort of like going back to when I was little and looking at family photos, right? And gleaning who these people were. They were leaving clues, visual clues about who they were through their dress and attitude. I think that the artists, if they're particularly generous, are leaving us clues about existence, fragments that we can make whole in our own sensibility through what they've seen. And then we make it our own.
0: And my last question is, as it says the Great Women Artists podcast, if there was a woman artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her?
1: <laughs> I think probably Arvis. And just to thank her. Perfect.
0: Hilton Els, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Katie, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with the fantastic Hilton Als. I am just in awe of his takes on Deanne Arbus and Alice Neal, and urge you all to look up and read his writing. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nader Smilelage and thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.